Just a heads up, Darksiders. This podcast may contain sensitive or explicit material. Definitely not appropriate for little ears. Listener discretion is advised. Now, on to the show. Today's story starts out in Boston, Massachusetts, United States. Known for its beautiful brownstone buildings, world-class universities, where there is a Dunkin' Donuts on nearly every street corner, and of course, is home to the mighty Red Sox, the very best baseball team on the planet. A girl was sitting in the terminal at Boston Logan Airport. She was nervous. She wasn't a good flyer. But she had to make this journey. It was Christmas and she was going to England to spend the holidays with her family. And it was a surprise. Her niece had a dance recital on the 23rd of December and she was going to surprise the entire family by turning up to the recital. As she waited fretfully to board the plane, she noticed that the time for boarding the flight had come and gone. She looked up at the screen and it said that the flight was delayed. This only heightened her anxiety. Finally, after two hours, the girl and the other passengers were at last allowed to get on the aircraft, where they sat and sat and sat. As the hours ticked by, the girl realised that the flight was now so delayed that she was going to miss her niece's recital. There was no way she could make it on time. Apologies were forthcoming from the flight crew, with platitudes that the delay was due to an increased volume of travellers due to the holiday period. Finally, after six hours, the flight took off. And all the passengers on board breathed a sigh of relief. When the plane arrived in London Heathrow the next morning, the captain came over the speakers. He apologised for the delay and hoped it didn't ruin onward travel. He then went on to explain the real reason they were delayed. And as he spoke, every passenger on the plane fell silent as a mixture of fear and relief swept through the cabin. This is Darkside and I am your host, Suze. So what happened to delay the plane? What had the captain said that caused an entire cabin full of passengers to feel so relieved? Hmm, let's find out. Good afternoon. The FBI is questioning a man who tried to blow up a transatlantic passenger jet with explosives hidden in one of his shoes. The plane was on its way from France to the United States. It was the 22nd of December, 2001. Travellers were trying to get home or go away for the holidays. Despite it being just before Christmas, a time when flights are usually full to capacity, the 269-seater aircraft had 197 passengers on board that night. Just three months after 9-11, travelling by aviation was a scary prospect to many as it was to the girl at the top of the story, hence why the flight was not so full. 
The meal was served an hour into the ten-hour flight, but one of the passengers refused the meal. This raised a red flag with the flight attendants, as it was very unusual for food to be refused on such a long flight. After the meal, the cabin lights were dimmed and the onboard entertainment lit up the cabin with a soft blue hue. People reclined their chairs, snuggled under their blankets and settled down for the long-haul flight ahead of them. However, passengers began to smell something odd. Smoke. They alerted flight attendant Hermes Mutadia, who found the source of the smell. It was coming from a man sat by a window towards the rear of the plane, the very man that had refused his dinner. So, she asked him, Excuse me, sir, what are you doing? He ignored her. So, she asked him again, Excuse me, sir, what are you doing? This time, he looked at her and said, I'm cleaning my teeth with a burnt match. Hermes left the passenger and went to the cockpit. She told the captain that she thought the man was trying to smoke, and as she tried to point the man out to the captain, she noticed that the man was now crouched forward in his seat. The captain advised her to keep an eye on him and tell him that no smoking was allowed on board. Hermes made her way back to the man, whom was still bent forward, and once again she asked him what he was doing, and he ignored her again. Every red flag was waving madly for Hermes, and instinctively she leant forward and pulled the man back. He sat upright, looked coldly at her, and... He lit a match and held it to something in between his legs. Hermes looked down, expecting to see a cigarette or a cigar. Instead, she saw a shoe. Hermes decided she needed help to deal with the man, so she ran to the back of the plane to get her colleague, fellow flight attendant, Christina Jones. They ran back to the man, and when they approached him, they saw that the strings of the shoe were now standing up and were smouldering. Hermes screamed. Both Hermes and Christina started shouting for the passengers to help them. Immediately, people in the nearby seats began jumping up. Kwame James was a basketball player whom lived in France and was on his way to the Caribbean for the holidays. At six foot eight, he was three inches taller than the man with the matches. I was awoken by some screams next to me and the girl directly to the left of me, she was screaming, screaming like we are on a roller coaster scream. It looked like a scuffle from my vantage point. And if not a scuffle, like somebody was having a seizure, just like my mind didn't go to anything was completely wrong at that moment. I was literally watching this and then a flight attendant came from the other direction from first class and tapped me on my shoulder and said, um, you know, can you please help? You could tell she was scared. James followed Christina Jones down the aisle and as he approached the back of the plane, he saw what he thought was a fight between passengers. And I'm thinking, okay, I, I got to break a, a fight. As I got closer and was about to like start holding people back, I realized uh, there was another flight attendant that you couldn't see from just where I was sitting at looking back, but she was on the ground. And, you know, somebody said something about he's trying to light something. That's when, uh, you know, everything just kind of stopped. But, he, you know, it's three months after September 11th. Um, there's commotion on the plane. Somebody says something about he's trying to light something. 
I even think the word bomb was used, um, and it was just it was just a surreal stop in your tracks moment. James started pushing through the gathering crowds in the aisle to get to the fray. He saw a flight attendant on the ground, and a man was on top of her. Her hand was bleeding from where the man had bitten her. Passengers were pulling at the man, trying to get him up, trying to restrain him. Yeah, he was definitely fighting back with all his power. I think he was like 6'4", like 240, 230, 240, so he was a big guy. And it, it took you know every bit of our effort to really control him. There was no marshals, there was no handcuffs or what exactly to do. Um, so we as passengers decided, you know, hey, we, we got to tie him up uh, somehow, some way. And passengers passed belts and shoestrings and anything that could tie and we actually tied him to the seat. The passengers had managed to finally get the man under control. But he was strong, and he kept pulling against his constraints. Hermes, the flight attendant whom had raised the alert about the man, was the very same attendant that had been bitten by the assailant. Despite her injuries and the shock of the events that had just unfolded, she remained calm. Hermes and Christina, the other flight attendant, decided to scroll through the passenger manifesto to see if there was anyone else on board that could help. Two French doctors that they helped us, and he was injected with Valium, sedated. He was fighting for something he believed that I was fighting for something I believe, life. Kwame James assigned himself to sit behind the man for the rest of the flight, to act as both guard of the assailant and protectorate of the other passengers. By now, the passengers were acutely aware, given the ramblings of the man, that he was an Al-Qaeda terrorist. As the hours ticked by, James struggled to get his head around why the man had done this. I just can't understand uh, hate and hatred and, you know, why you'd want to, you know, kill somebody or kill people that you don't know who aren't attached to the cause that, that you claim to be fighting towards. So I remember, you know, call like, hey, you know, were you really trying to do something? Were you really trying to light something? And I do remember him as calm as day saying, you'll see. Um, and that was, a, that, was a, that was probably the scariest moment for me. You see, it wasn't clear at this point whether the man had been acting alone and whether there may be another bomb on board the aircraft. The captain of the flight had been alerted to the incident and he made the decision to divert the flight to the nearest U.S. airport, Boston Logan International Airport. However, in the event that there was another bomb on board, further security measures had to be taken before the plane was allowed to land in Boston. U.S. Air Force fighter jets escorted the plane as it was diverted to Boston. And once on the ground, a SWAT team came aboard and Richard Reed was arrested. When his shoes were x-rayed, they were found to be packed with plastic explosives and a crude detonator. Enough, say the FBI, to have had catastrophic consequences. The plane landed safely. And as we've just heard, the man, one Richard Reed, was taken into custody. This incident happened just three months after 9-11, and the world, especially the USA, was in a heightened state of fear. More stringent security measures and checks were in place at airports around the globe. There was increased screening of people with links to terrorist groups, tighter rules and restrictions for obtaining passports and work and travel visas. So, just how did this man manage to get by all of these measures and restrictions 
and board a flight with explosives in his shoe. A man whom had links to terrorism. A man whom set off just about every security red flag, not just throughout the last few years, but more pointedly, in the lead-up to boarding the flight. And just who was this 28-year-old born and raised Englishman, Richard Reed? Hmm. Well, I think we need to go back to the very beginning for this one. Leslie Hughes from Frome in Somerset met Robin Reed in 1972, when she was visiting London to attend a course. The two hit it off and were soon in a whirlwind romance that led to a quick marriage, because Leslie found out she was pregnant. But from the start, the marriage was fraught. Leslie was the daughter of an accountant and magistrate. Her new husband, by comparison, had come to England from Jamaica. He worked on the railways in London, and he was also a petty thief. The differences in their backgrounds and how they conducted their day-to-day lives and livelihoods soon started to cause rifts between the couple. On the 12th of August, 1973, they welcomed their new son into the world. Or, should I say, Leslie welcomed their new son into the world? Robin was in prison for theft at the time that his son was born. Leslie named the child Richard, and the couple battled on for four more years. But the rifts in the marriage had fractured into crevices, and the couple decided to separate. For the purpose of the rest of this story, I'm going to call Richard by his surname, Reed. I I toyed with Turd. But as his name crops up many times in the script, I figured an overuse of turd might make the story a bit crappy. (laughs) Get what I did there? (laughs) Anyway, back to the story. So, Reed stayed with Leslie after his father left, and although his parents remained on good terms after their separation, Reed saw little of his father in the subsequent years. It wasn't long before Leslie's new partner moved into their house. And this is when the problem started with Reed. Oh, it it wasn't that he didn't get along with his stepfather. No, not at all, in fact. It was because he was confused by his own connection to his family and to society. He suffered racial discrimination on a constant basis. But his mother and stepfather did not. He didn't understand his lineage, his roots... He was a mixed-race child looking for an identity in a racially fueled environment with two white parents whom didn't understand and couldn't empathise with his dilemmas and struggles. And from everything I've read about Reed, this really does seem to be the genesis of his problems. A lack of identity and a desperate but unfulfilled need to fit in. At around the age of 11, Reed and his mother were at loggerheads, They were just not getting on at all. Reed was growing up in Streatham, a borough in the south of London that was known for... Well, uh, let's put it this way. In 2002, in a BBC poll, Streatham High Street was voted Britain's worst street. Little caveat here. Streatham has now turned itself around since that poll. But back in Reed's youth, unemployment in the area was high as was crime, and so were gangs. 
all the things that Leslie was trying hard to prevent Reed becoming involved with, and all the things that lured the young Reed. In an attempt to get him away from this lifestyle, and to mend the relationship between him and his mother by giving them some time apart, Reed went to live with his aunt in Bromley, a largely white area in the late 80s, but far away from Streatham. Leslie hoped this would sort out Reed. He'd been doing poorly in school and she hoped that this fresh start would help her son. Sadly, it did not. Reed continued to do poorly at school and he continued to struggle to fit in with his new environment. He tried to identify with the other black youths in the area, but they weren't accepting of him. In short, Reed just didn't belong, no matter where he seemed to be. And even though he was now in an area that had much less crime, he managed to seek it out. In the years that Reed lived with his aunt, his mother and stepfather had a child together. Things between Reed and his mother improved over the years, and so, in his mid-teens, he moved back in with her. But, now having a white sibling and two white parents deepened the growing sense of confusion and lack of identity in Reed. At 16, Reed left school, having done poorly in his exams. However, with his lack of qualifications, he had few prospects and struggled to find work. He became a graffiti artist, or a tagger, as they are often known, and went under the pseudonym of Enroll. And it was right at this time that his mother decided she wanted to move to the West Country with her husband and her youngest son, but not Reed. Hmm. And so, Reed found himself homeless and jobless. He moved into a hostel in Lewisham, lived off benefits and continued with his graffiti art. But it wasn't long before Reed became a target for the local gangs. They would hold him at knife point and command him to commit a robbery on their behalf. Reed, both terrified but also desperate to find a group to fit in with, would comply. He was quick to follow a crowd if it gave him an identity, a status, a belonging. And it wasn't long before crime soon turned into an occupation for Reed. He gravitated from shoplifting to mugging to robbery. And it wasn't long before the police caught up with him and he ended up behind bars, which was to be the first of many prison stints for Reed during his youth. So yes, admittedly, so far, Reed has not had the best childhood. There were some deep dysfunctional elements in his upbringing. But how many people reach adulthood without some adversity or unhappiness? And those that have experienced adversity in their childhood? Well, most do not go on to try and blow up an aircraft. So, what happened to Reed? Why did his fundamental ethos change so drastically that he got to the point whereby he wanted to kill a plane full of people? Well, we've heard that Reed didn't have many positive influences in his early life, which for someone like him, who was desperate to fit in and belong and have an identity, it left him vulnerable and impressionable. All it needed was someone, anyone, to give him a direction a purpose, and he probably would have followed it. And it was during one of his stints in prison 
when Reed was in his early twenties, that his father, Robin, came back into his life. And what Robin found in his son was a dejected, despondent young man whom life seemed to have little to offer. In the years that Robin hadn't seen his son, he'd turned his life around. He'd put petty theft behind him, found permanent work, and had converted to Islam. He'd become a Muslim as a way to feel integrated. It is well known that London in the 60s and 70s was a hotbed of contention and discrimination, and Robin very much felt the brunt of this. However, within the Muslim community, he found a sense of integration, inclusion, and belonging. Looking at his son now, he recognised many of his feelings of identity loss, alienation, and enmity, as he too had experienced all of these feelings many years before. Those feelings of dejection and disassociation, which he knew had led to his life of petty crimes. To help his son avoid the very path his life had taken, he recommended to his son that he should convert to Islam. Reed pondered this. The sense of community, inclusion and attachment that his father spoke about greatly appealed to him. He decided to visit Abdul Ghani Qureshi, the imam at the jail, and in his conversations with the imam, he found an escape within the mosque, both spiritually and practically, and he found what he had been looking for all his life. Understanding, acceptance, cohesion, a community, and an identity. So, with his father's encouragement, he converted to Islam. And it was this parental guidance, which is ironic considering all of Robin's absences from his life, that would set Reed on the path to religious radicalisation. But it was the guidance and direction that Reed had been desperately seeking. As his commitment to Islam grew, Reed gave up drugs and smoking. He began to corral his intelligence to challenge the world around him. He wanted to know why governments do what they do, what motivated people to resort to extreme violence. Which again, ironic given what he ended up almost doing. He was particularly taken by a story he had heard about a large group of Iranian women and children whom went into war armed with nothing and all were slaughtered. He repeatedly asked the imam, What must you go through to get there where life doesn't matter anymore? Now fully converted to Islam, when Reed left prison after his last stint in 1996, he made his way to Brixton Mosque, which practised a form of Islam called Salafism. This is a reform branch movement within Sunni Islam that believe in a return to the original political and moral practices of Islam. When Reed arrived at Brixton Mosque, he was entering into a place of moderate Islam with a reputation as an informal rehabilitation centre for wayward youths. So much so that boxer Muhammad Ali, an orthodox Muslim, made a point of stopping at the mosque in February of 1999. The celebrity paid homage to a religious community known for its kindness to those, like Reed, who deserved a second chance. The chairman of the mosque, Abul Haq Baker, felt that Reed was an enthusiastic, consistent, committed individual. So committed 
that Reed changed his name to Abdel Rahim and began to learn Arabic. I will still be calling him by turd, oops, sorry, Reed, for the rest of this episode. But for all intents and purpose, it seemed as though Reed had finally found a calling, a place where he belonged, and an identity. So impressed with him, the mosque leaders invited Reed to travel with them to Luton, Birmingham, and other mosques in London, attending lectures and religious seminars. The more Reed learned about Islam, the more exuberant he became in his pursuit of knowledge. Salafi Islam provided Reed with a guidance and structure he had never really had. But Baker began to worry that Reed's enthusiasm was, well, being redirected. He became quarrelsome with colleagues and had heated arguments over what he saw as Brixton's passive stance on the oppression of Muslims around the world. He started to wear the traditional Muslim thobe, a loose, long-sleeved, ankle-length garment. Baker also began to notice that Reed's attendance at Brixton Mosque was starting to wane. But when he did attend, his attitude was more argumentative, his narrative more aggressive, and his Islamic leanings more extreme. It wasn't long before Baker found out that Reed was also attending Finsbury Park Mosque, and the imam at this mosque was one Abu Hamza, who preached a form of Islamic revivalism, a rhetoric that included violent interpretations of jihad. Jihad interprets as a struggle or fight against the enemies of Islam, and just to put this into context, if you don't recognise the name Abu Hamza, he was convicted in 2004 in the UK on 11 counts of encouraging the killing of non-Muslims and intent to stir up racial hatred. He was extradited to the USA in 2012, where he was convicted of 11 counts of acts of terrorism and acts to incite terrorism. He is currently holed up in ADX Florence in Colorado for life without the possibility of parole. <laughs> nice chap, eh? And that will give you an insight into the type of people that Reed was now hanging out with and being influenced by. Baker tried to re-engage Reed within the moderate Brixton Mosque community, but Reed had begun taking external classes that made him question the peaceful philosophy that Baker preached and he was very soon much at odds with the leaders of the mosque, including Baker. He made a point about arguing about the jihad with them. They were trying to tell him it is often a personal struggle, not a violent one. But he accused Baker of selling out to the West. And then, in 1988, Reed stopped attending either Brixton or Finsbury Mosque altogether. In fact, it seems as though he had just disappeared. Or had he? No, he had not. He had left England. He spent time in Pakistan and Afghanistan, where, according to informants, he was trained at a terrorist camp. Whilst in Afghanistan, it is alleged that Reed met up with Zacharias Musawi, whom had also attended the Brixton Mosque in the 1990s. It is speculative as to whether the two knew each other whilst attending the mosque, neither have confirmed or denied, but they certainly did 
become friends whilst at the Afghani training camp. And it is alleged they even devised a plot to hijack a plane and crash it into the White House. Oh, and I'm sorry, if you don't recognise the name Zacharias Musawi, well, he was the 20th hijacker in the World Trade Center attacks and the only man ever convicted in a US court for a role in the 9-11 attacks. After Afghanistan, Reid spent some time in Iraq and Iran, and it was during this period that he sent letters home to his father, Robin, telling him that he had settled down and had achieved inner peace. Peace for Reid spelt relief for Robin, as he too had noticed the worrying, aggressive rhetoric of his son. And then, in July of 2001, Reid returned to London. He tried to attend a debate at the Brixton Mosque, but Baker, the chairman of the mosque, had heard about Reid's time in Pakistan through the grapevine. Now, we know that he had travelled to Pakistan, um, and no one had issue with that, because other individuals had travelled to Pakistan to learn the Qur'an, and they returned. Some returned more fervent in their um, practice of Islam, and others became more liberal and stopped practising Islam. We had already asked Abdurrahim not to return to the mosque. I, in particular, as the chairman, on the last encounter I had with him, told him he wasn't welcome there anymore. It was around this time that Reed's mother contacted Baker. She'd not heard from her son in months. In fact, none of the family had. It was as though he had estranged himself from them. Baker informed her of his trip to Pakistan and that Reed was no longer a member of the mosque, but he didn't explain why. Shortly after this incident, in the summer of 2001, Reed travelled to Israel, where he spent 10 days there. Amazingly, he was stopped and searched at the airport, but allowed to proceed. After his 10 days, he flew to the Gaza Strip in Egypt, where he spent some time, and then went on to Istanbul, and then back to Pakistan. It was an odyssey through some of the key areas for global terrorism. It was also expensive. Since leaving Brixton in 1998, Reed had had no discernible source of income. So, just how was he paying for all of this travel? Or, more pointedly, whom was paying for all of this travel? Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that he was being funded. From Pakistan, Reed travelled to Belgium via the Netherlands, where he stayed for a week. And during this week, he applied for a new passport to the British Embassy. At the time, the authorities didn't flag this as suspicious. A British man passing through Europe needs a new passport? Um, I'm sure it happens quite frequently. Despite the fact that several pages of his old passport had been ripped out, the replacement was issued without question. However, in hindsight, this move bore a striking resemblance to the actions of Mohammed Atta a man who obtained a new passport in Germany after claiming his was lost. And Mohammed Atta was the ringleader of the 9-11 attacks. But as with Atta, this red flag was not spotted with Reed. 
But why would Atta and Reed attain new passports, I hear you ask? Because the new ones carried no incriminating stamps. On the 14th of December, Reed returned to the Netherlands and bought a pair of black trainers. At some stage in the next week, each shoe was packed with more than three and a half ounces or 100 grams. This was mixed with petroleum jelly to form a putty-like substance and was put into the hollowed-out shoes. The explosive used, called TATP, is a favourite of Palestinian suicide bombers who call it the Mother of Satan because of its instability and power. Cord, filled with gunpowder, was then worked into the shoelaces as a fuse, which snaked up past Reed's ankles. Reed was primed. He left Amsterdam for Paris on the 16th of December and bought his ticket on the 17th of December in cash. Hmm. Red flag. His flight was from Paris to Antigua and it departed on the 21st of December, which, for those of you that may not know, this is a significant date in aviation history. It was the 13th anniversary of the Lockerbie disaster, when a flight scheduled from Frankfurt to Detroit via London in 1988 blew up after a terrorist bomb exploded on board the plane. It was brought down over the town of Lockerbie in Scotland, killing all 259 souls on board. But Reed was to be denied his martyrdom. As he passed through security at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, an employee of ICTS, the private firm policing the airport, was suspicious. His profile, a lone traveller, unkempt, scruffy, and about to board a very long-haul flight without any check-in or hand luggage, and whom had bought their ticket in cash, well, it raised an automatic red flag. And hallelujah and amen, finally someone noticed one of the many, many red flags. When Reed was searched, airport security found a Walkman and a cassette with recordings of the Koran, as well as anti-Israeli messages, a copy of Time magazine titled Islam in Europe, and an issue of Newsweek with a picture of Osama bin Laden. But, apparently, none of these items raised any further red flags. Hmm. When he was asked why he was travelling and why he had no luggage, Reed claimed that he was visiting his aunt in Antigua, and she had clothes waiting for him. Again, this raised no red flags. Huh. Okay. Even if his aunt did have clothes for him, what about toiletries and personal effects and medication? All things that need to be packed into luggage. Hmm, hey-ho. But the authorities ignored the red flags, and they believed him. As the interrogation had taken so long, he missed his flight. And so, the airline put him up in a hotel at their expense. <sighs> there had been no body search and no sniffer dogs. The next day, Reed turned up two hours early for the 10.40pm American Airlines Flight 63. It was a cold, wet, rainy day in Paris, 
and as Reed trudged through the driving rain, his trainers became wet. This time security staff recognised him from the previous day, waved him through without any inspection. Hmm. A few hours later, as the plane cruised at more than 30,000 feet, Reed bided his time until the moment was right to execute his plan. He waited until the passengers were settled down for the night and the cabin lights had been dimmed. There was a woman sitting in the same row as him and he waited and waited until she finally went to use the facilities. Now was his time for action. He took out a match, lit it and held it to the detonator cords trailing out of his shoes. He planned to then place the shoe against the fuselage, creating a devastating explosion that would blow a hole the size of a tractor wheel in the side of the plane. The shoe bomb would have had at least the explosive power of an anti-personnel mine. If that hadn't destroyed the plane, the decompression of the cabin at such a high altitude would have forced it to the ground. But as we know from our valiant heroes on the plane that night, Reed's plan was thwarted, and so was his radical ideology of martyrdom. So far, I've mentioned a few of the red flags that should have stopped Reed long before he even boarded the flight. The stop and search in Israel, the replacement passport in Belgium, whereby his old passport had pages torn out, and the fact that he had paid for his ticket in cash, and that he was travelling without any luggage. But there are other red flags that I haven't mentioned. Dr. Abdul Haq Baker, chairman of the Brixton Mosque, had warned the police about the radicalisation that was happening in some of the local mosques. But nothing was followed up. In addition, the Paris airport security firm, ICTS, had warned the French authorities on two different days that Reed should be screened further. But the authorities cleared him to fly. Whilst it's easy in hindsight to link the dots and paint the right picture, one might ask whether an uncoordinated collection of information and intelligence by different and often competing institutions at different levels and with different agendas should be seen as the right approach. And in the aftermath of 9-11, and the shoe bomber, as Reed's attempt came to be known, U.S. authorities agreed that it wasn't the right approach. And so, the Department of Homeland Security was established with the intention of bringing together all the different information agencies under one umbrella so that the, well, so that the dots could be connected, so to speak. It largely focuses on terrorism whilst managing other duties, including border security, customs and emergency management. Anyway, back to the radical repugnant Reed. He was charged with intimidation and interference with a flight crew at the US District Court in Boston. During the hearing, Reed declared that he was a follower of Osama bin Laden, another fetid turd, and that he did not recognise the US justice system, but agreed that he had committed the acts outlined in the charge against him. Thus, he pleaded guilty to all charges. He was sentenced to three life terms plus 110 years in prison without parole and was transferred to ADX Florence in Colorado, 
a super maximum security prison where he still languishes to this day. Hallelujah and Amen. So, all these years later, is Reed still radicalised? Is he remorseful of his actions? Well, the answers to both of them is yes and no. In the exceptionally few interviews that have been held with him, he talks little of the actual thwarted attack. But what he does say reveals a contrasting mix of apparently a degree of sorrow about the idea of killing innocent people and a lack of remorse about the plan because he believed it was right. He claims his actions were permissible under Islamic law, although does admit that this would be hotly contested within Muslim communities and that it was the will of Allah that he didn't succeed. Not because, as he says, it was displeasing to God. No, no, because why would killing 197 innocent people be displeasing to God, huh? That was a rhetorical question. So no, it wouldn't be displeasing to God, according to Reed, but rather because it was not either his time to die, nor those that were on the plane with him. And obviously, God had other plans for him. Not quite sure what they can be when he's holed up in a prison for the rest of his wretched life. So after all these years, in one of the toughest prisons in America, with no other radicalised inmates around him, he still clings to this extremist, warped view of Islam. But why? Melham Orozco, who runs a non-profit organisation called the Justicia Institute, has interviewed Reed with the intention of writing a book about him. She has surmised that once terrorists are radicalised, they cling to their twisted interpretation of Islam, even after more than a decade in isolation, because it withstands the cost versus the benefit, it withstands the will to live, and it withstands years in the toughest prison in America. Now, it was obviously Robin, Reed's father, that converted him to Islam. And this is not something he feels guilty about. He says the sort of Islam he encountered was about loving mankind, not blowing up planes. And this is what he wanted for his son. He recognised his son's struggles with fitting in, belonging and lost identity, for they had been his struggles as well. Islam and the Muslim community had welcomed him and he'd found his purpose, his identity, his community and it was a loving, supportive environment. This is what he'd wanted for his son, not the extreme form of Islam that Reed turned to. Robin struggles to understand why and how his son became radicalised. After all, he didn't and he suffered the same struggles as his boy. The thing is, we can hunt for rational explanations for why Reed became radicalised. The pressure of being a mixed-race kid in a white household, being a mixed-race kid in a hostile social environment, the sense of deprivation and rootlessness caused by his parents' separation and his father's frequent absence, an insecure young child's need for certainty, structure, belonging and identity a sense of spiritual malaise, a lack of direction and authenticity in his life, 
the cultural poverty of late capitalist society. We can name any one of those, but we are clutching at straws. So many endure the same and worse without choosing to detonate themselves along with a couple of hundred fellow human beings redefined as infidels. Dr. Abdul Hakbaker, the chairman of Brixton Mosque, well, he has his own theory. The world had changed emphatically by the events of September 11th, and everyone was impacted in airports, especially by the attempted uh, attack of Richard Reed, in that we all had to remove our shoes um, at the airport to be checked. Um, and again, this was as a result of his thwarted terrorist attack. And a little bit on Richard Reed. I spoke about him and his amiable character. He was also not a forerunner or frontrunner um, in, in, in bravery, should I say. So I believe, my personal belief, belief is that he wanted to get caught when trying to enact the ignition of his trainers, bomb in his trainers. Because if he didn't want to get caught, he could have easily have gone into the toilets and caused the destruction that he wanted to do there. And remains um, one of my considerations, and I do not see any premise on which that can be countered. The fact is, I don't think we'll ever know. We are all unique and respond to situations and environments in different ways. Even if we shared similar experiences, we can have completely alternate reactions and responses. Responses that shape our outlook, our mentality and our ethos. As I've mentioned earlier, in the aftermath of 9-11, aviation security went through a major overhaul with more stringent measures put in place, stricter vetting of passport and visa recipients and tighter screening and monitoring of those that had ties to terrorist groups. I queried earlier in the episode as to why and how Reed hadn't been flagged by these new measures. How had he slipped through the net? Well, the fact is that he didn't really slip through the net, for there was only a limited net to catch him. Yes, after 9-11 there was a scramble to improve security, but by the time Reed boarded the plane just three months later, security policies and new stricter measures were still being implemented. Some were starting to take place and others were years away from being implemented. Why, I hear you ask? Because policy overhaul, like anything else involving red tape, takes quite some time to put into place. I mentioned earlier that as a direct result of 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security was established to focus on terrorism, border security, customs and emergency management. Well, this didn't actually come into effect until 2003, two years after 9-11 and the shoe bomber. As a direct result of the shoe bomber incident, the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA as it is known for short, which is a part of the Homeland Security, included the screening of shoes at all airports in the USA as a mandatory policy. But, like the Department of Homeland Security, this also didn't come into effect until 2003. So whilst all the red flags were there, left like a breadcrumb trail 
right up to the point that Reed got onto American Airlines Flight 63 on the 22nd of December 2001. There was little in place to connect the trail. Oh, he was being flagged, but by independent authorities that weren't always cohesive about working together and sharing information. And because they had missed Reed, only luck, a wet trainer, two alert flight attendants, and a six foot eight inch tall basketball player prevented a terrible tragedy. For any of you that are frequent flyers, or were before 2020 grounded the planet, I personally know that despite the much longer queues at security, the hours of sitting around the drafty terminals because you've got to be at the airport three hours before your flight, and carrying only 100 millilitres of water through security and sipping it very slowly because you'd rather wait for the free water on the plane than pay £10 for a bottle inside the terminal. I personally am thankful that these new measures are in place. I'd rather suffer the mile-long snake formation-type security queue that stretches to the other end of the airport whilst watching the guy at the front slowly unlace his 22 eyelet hiking boots than be sat on a plane with a man trying to light a bomb in his shoe. Wouldn't you? So that is the story of Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, the thwarted terrorist, the pernicious, misaligned radical. But... I'd rather end this story by not talking about a man who's not sorry for almost killing a plane full of people. Come on, that's not my style. Instead, I want to focus on the heroes of today's story. Kwame James, Hermes Mutadie, Christina Jones, and all the other brave souls whom fought so valiantly to detain Reed and to save the lives of 197 passengers and crew. So, how did this near-tragic event affect them? They were not trained in detainment. They were not intelligence or police or military. They were ordinary people, just like you and me, going about their lives. Surely, this near-death experience had to have affected them deeply. To just know that you were that close to not being here, um, that definitely uh, sinks in on you. But I, I just took the approach that I was going to be positive and turn that moment into a positive lesson of how everything can change in a split second and you could not be here. So you need to live every day to the fullest. You need to do positive things and impact people's lives in a positive way. And don't get caught up in the, in the small day-to-day -day things that can bring you down. Edison Mason, I could talk about my experience. When you are going through this, you are so calm that you cannot believe it. And it kicked you after six months. After six months is when you realize, I am alive, 195 passengers alive, my airline is safe. But you realize after six months what you were going through and you go to some post-traumatic stress. I went through that for almost a year and a half, but uh, you have to not let that control you because if it controls you, that's it. And you see, I'm still working for American Airlines. I'm 19 years with him. I love what I'm doing and I, I'm, you have to be strong. You have to be very strong to put that behind you. Put it behind and go ahead. Go ahead. Do your life. 
Hmm. What amazing, courageous people. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. In 2002, President George W. Bush gave his first State of the Union address after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. A few days before Christmas, an airline flight attendant spotted a passenger lighting a match. The crew and passengers quickly subdued the man who had been trained by Al-Qaeda and was armed with explosives. The people on that plane were alert and as a result likely saved nearly 200 lives. And tonight we welcome and thank flight attendant Hermes Mutardere and Christina Jones. Hmm. Very befitting. So as you all know, I like to cover stories that change laws or law enforcement or those that end up having some sort of positive outcome that benefit people or communities. And you're probably thinking, as did my husband, TH, when I read him today's script, why cover the shoe bomber? It was 9-11 that led to the major overhaul in aviation security. The shoe bomber incident only led to shoes being screened at airports. Well, this episode is being released on the 22nd of December 2020, exactly 19 years since the night of that thwarted attack. I thought it was befitting on the anniversary of this event to not only relay the story of the shoe bomber and how he achieved radicalisation so we can all recognise the red flags, but also to herald the brave heroes that stopped his attack, and to publicly, well, via podcast anyway, and personally thank Kawami James, Hermes Mutarie, Christina Jones and all the other passengers that aided in stopping Reed's heinous attack. Why do I personally want to thank them? Well, I don't know about you, but if I were presented with such a scene on an aircraft, a tussle with a terrorist, would I have the bravery and the guts to try to stop him? I'd like to think that I would, but unless presented with that situation, I couldn't say for sure. Would you? Oh, and the other reason I wanted to thank our courageous heroes. Flying after 9-11 was scary, especially for Americans and travellers in and out of America. Those that liked flying became nervous. Nervous flyers became terrified. But the brave, courageous actions of today's heroes inspired hope and inspiration. Hope that we weren't going to give in to fear. Hope that we'd fight to protect one another. And inspiration to be as courageous as they were. I know it did for me. Why I hear you ask? Well, the girl at the top of the story, the nervous flyer that missed her niece's recital because, as we now know, the plane with the shoe bomber was being diverted to Boston. That girl was me. I hope you liked today's story. If you did, please, as a lovely Christmas present just to me, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe at Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The more reviews and rates I get, the more the podcast platforms, like iTunes, share my podcast with potential listeners. I've noticed that most of my listeners are tuning in via iTunes. 
and it literally takes 30 seconds to click on the rate and review tab and write me a quick review. I'd love it if you could do that. Saying that, I'm absolutely bowled over by the fact that my little podcast is reaching so many ears in so many countries. I find this just baffling, truly amazing, and I can't thank you enough. So I'd just like to give a little shout out to some of those countries. Right now, the UK and the USA are vying for top position. It fluctuates each week. Hmm, I wonder whom will eventually come out on top. So, hello and thank you to the USA and the UK. I've also quite a few listeners in Canada. Hello and welcome Canada, eh? But this week, I'd like to welcome Pakistan. Hilo ara kajakriya. And Saudi Arabia. Marharban bikar washukran. And Albania. Perchintente divalmenderit. My deepest apologies, as I probably butchered most of those pronunciations, but I just wanted to show my appreciation to you all for listening to my podcast. Oh, and do you know any crimes that change laws in your country? If so, I'd love you to contact me and share it with me. I'd love to cover more international stories, but it's not always easy to find the information online. Oh, another bit of housekeeping... I'm finally on Instagram. Yay, go me! Woohoo! I know, a bit late to the party, but hey ho, better than never. You can find me at Sue's at Darkside Podcast on Instagram. Come join me, just like Facebook. Love to have a chat. Lastly, as Christmas is knocking on our door, per the request of my long suffering husband, TH, he has asked if I could spend some time entertaining him over the holiday season. Hmm. So, Darkseid is going to be taking a short hiatus over this period. But don't worry. I'll be back in the new year. And I promise you, we've got some doozies coming up. So with that said, I wish you all the loveliest holiday season and an extremely happy and healthy new year. And here is hoping 2021 will be a damn sight better than 2020. And don't forget, until next time, stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out. <laughs>